We're in Romans 13 today. On Christmas Eve morning a couple weeks ago, my sermon was titled Spies Like Us. And we thought together about one way that the Bible pictures the people of Jesus as agents of God embedded in the world, preparing for the final invasion and ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. We compared Mary and Joseph and all the rest of us who've sworn allegiance to Jesus to sleeper agents who go about daily life like everyone else does, but are ready to be called into action at any moment. It's going to be helpful to keep that in mind as we study Romans 13. If we forget who we are, operatives working for the kingdom of God will almost certainly misread Romans 13. We mustn't think of ourselves as one more group of religious adherents who just happen to be the ones who got it right. There are billions of religious people in the world, most of whom are not working for the kingdom of God. Neither can we think of ourselves as people who are more serious about morality than others. You know, in the world, there are a variety of moral codes, and there are billions of people trying to keep them, and some of them are more serious about it than many Christians. No, the person of Jesus, who belongs to Jesus has come over to his side and confessed him Lord, which was in Paul's day a radical thing to do. And it still is. That person's not just a morally upright or pious person. He or she is an insurgent, a subversive The people of Jesus are radicals, daring to speak the truth that there is another king, one called Jesus. Our ultimate loyalty lies with him, and we will not allow loyalty to anyone or anything else, family, party, or nation, to compromise it. Our application to the state has limits. Our obligation to Jesus has none. That's radical. Maybe you didn't know that when you, were, when you became a Christian. You didn't know what you were signing up for. Maybe you weren't adequately briefed about what it means to join Jesus. Maybe someone neglected to tell you that you're going to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the kingdom of God. Maybe it wasn't made clear to you that you were signing your life over, that you were bought with a price, and therefore from now on you must honor God with your body. If, if that wasn't sufficiently explained to you, then I'm telling you now, faith in Christ is not a hobby for the religiously inclined. It's a life for the agents, the operatives, the servants, you choose the word, of Jesus With that in mind, we're ready to look at Romans 13. Now, remember who wrote this. This was written by the operations officer for the kingdom of God's European mission. Now, it may help you to read this as if you were a first century kingdom of God operative, that is a Christian, living in Rome, the capital city of a vast empire that does not recognize your king as its lord. These are instructions from an experienced operative about how to live your life and go about your work for Jesus in a foreign and potentially hostile kingdom. Let's read it. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, 
for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he'll commend you. For he's God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. If we read this passage as I've just suggested, we will avoid making the mistake that a church in England made during the Reformation. They stripped the walls of the beautiful medieval art that hung there, and they replaced it with an excerpt from this passage as a not-so-subtle warning to church members to toe the line and obey the king or face the consequences. That church allowed itself to be exploited, and it happened because those Christians forgot who they were, which has been one of the chief dangers our people have faced throughout history. Those Christians were acting as if they were nothing more than religiously disposed, morally conscientious servants of Edward VI. But loyalty to King Jesus trumps loyalty to King Edward. And for that matter, loyalty to President Trump. That said, King Jesus commands submission to King Edward. And for that matter, President Trump for the time being. The time being is the time, this is verses 11 and 12, to wake up and work for the Savior. But while we do that, we are under orders to submit to the governing authorities. The biblical writers never ask Christians to overthrow the governments of the world. See, Jesus is going to do that himself. The day's coming when the kingdom of God will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to, the end, to an end, as the prophet Daniel foresaw. To Jesus, all kings will bow down and all nations will serve him. But it's not our job to make that happen. It's not as if we can go up to heaven and bring Christ down. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 10? Our job is to prepare for the time when he does come down. Now, Paul has already written that when the revolution is complete and the kingdom has come, those who will be saved will be those who confess Jesus Lord. That was chapter 10, verse 9. That was a revolutionary thing to write, especially when we remember to whom he was writing. Christians who were compelled by law under threat of punishment to confess not Jesus, but Caesar Lord. And yet here he tells that same band of insurgents in the heart of Caesar's empire that they must for now submit to the governing authorities. And he gives three reasons for this directive. First, the rulers are, and literally, under God. If some ruler is over us, whether Claudius or Nero, or Obama or Trump, God is over that ruler. 
he or she would not be an authority otherwise. God has placed, rather than the NIV's established, God has placed such rulers and intends to use them to accomplish his purposes. Now, the fact that God places rulers does not give them carte blanche to do what they want. Just the opposite, because God has placed them in power for his people's good. That's verse 4. They will have to answer to him for how they've conducted themselves. And woe to those who've hurt his people. In the current climate, the idea that we must submit to rulers can be hard for us to accept. History's taught us how much evil those in authority are capable of doing. Hitler wiped out six million people simply because of their ethnicity. Stalin had tens of millions killed. Mao did the same. Today, Kim Jong-un's government persecutes Christians mercilessly. The Syrian government gassed entire villages to rid themselves of insurgent gangs. So how can Paul say that God places those kinds of people in authority? You know what? If you were one of the first recipients of this letter, if you were living in Rome and the church gathered to read the letter that Paul had sent, that is probably not a question that would even occur to you. As hard as it may be for us to grasp, in the first century, most people did not want less government. They wanted more. Yes, their rulers could be cruel and self-serving in a way that we've never even experienced, but the alternatives were, were worse. Chaos. Anyone outside the sphere of government in the first century, outside of the government's authority, was at the mercy of gangs of thugs and warring tribes. Though Roman rule brought with it many injustices, it also brought widespread peace and order. For the first time in history, people could travel with relatively little fear of being set upon by robbers and cutthroats. There were laws and there were structures in place to see that those laws were kept. In the ancient world, when a government fell, people trembled. They knew that chaos would ensue. And it's not just in the ancient world. You realize that? Think about what happened in Iraq after Saddam Hussein was deposed. The nation quickly broke up into warring tribes and religious factions that nearly tore it to shreds. And Iraq had been one of the more stable and progressive countries in the Middle East. There were Christians in government. In fact, the deputy prime minister was a Christian. There were women in medicine, large cities with modern transportation, and then when the government fell, there was chaos. Christians were killed, churches destroyed, women were afraid to go into the streets, Sunnis were murdered, Shiites bombed. In a matter of months, prosperous citizens faced economic ruin and hunger. No one could accuse Saddam of being a nice guy, but even he was used by God and is answerable to God. So the first reason we submit to governing authorities is because God placed rulers in authority for his purposes. And if we rebel against them, we're rebelling against what God has instituted. A second reason for submitting is downright utilitarian, to stay out of trouble. This is verse 4. If you do wrong, be afraid, 
For he, that is the one in authority, doesn't bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul wants his readers to stay out of trouble. For their own sake, but also for the sake of the kingdom of God. Remember why we're here, to serve the true king and prepare for his kingdom. That purpose is compromised when we get ourselves into trouble. A third reason for submitting is for conscience' sake. We don't submit to the governing authorities simply to stay out of trouble. As important as that is, we do it because it's the right thing to do. But what if it isn't the right thing to do? In the light of the history I just shared, that's a question we must face. What if submitting to authority entails doing wrong or failing to do right? Fortunately, the answer is clear. When we must choose between obeying God's representatives, the governing authorities, three times they're called God's servants in this passage. But when we must choose between obeying God's servants, the governing authorities, and obeying God himself, we obey God. Every time, despite the consequences. We say with Saints Peter and John, judge for yourselves what's right in God's sight. To obey, is it right in God's sight to obey you rather than God? And then we obey God. And if it means as it did for for Peter and John and for many others, facing legal action and punishment, we'll face it with confidence in God just like they did. But like them, we must remember what we're here for. We are agents of the kingdom of God. We're not on vacation. Obeying God for conscience' sake extends all the way to paying our taxes. Look at verse 7. Give everyone what you owe him. Literally, that is, do not continue owing anyone anything. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, pay revenue. Then, If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We might say, well, okay, Paul, but you don't understand our situation. The government misuses our tax money. They fund abortions overseas, or at least they used to. They waste billions. They fund a self-serving military-industrial complex. They use our tax money to cover up their own misdeeds, as we were shocked to learn recently during the sexual harassment scandal that rocked Congress. And you know what? All that's true. Nevertheless, Paul says, Pay your taxes. And remember, this is the same Paul whose taxes helped build the prisons where he was unlawfully detained. Jesus said regarding taxes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And of course, we know how that turned out. What was Caesar's was used to buy Jesus' cross and pay the men who nailed him to it. Still, we mustn't let other people's self-serving behavior become an excuse for our own. We must do what's right. We're the people of Jesus. And not everyone does. Here's an example. In 1987, for the first time, the IRS required taxpayers to include Social Security numbers of their dependent children on their tax returns. Before that, you could claim dependent children just by giving their names and their birth dates. But some guy at the IRS thought that if that if they would make people include the dependents' numbers, their Social Security numbers, they would crack down on fraud and increase 
uh, revenues. They had no idea. That first year, seven million dependents mysteriously vanished from the tax rolls who had been there the year before. Seven million, amounting to something like $3 billion in revenue. <clears throat> but we're not that kind of people who do that kind of thing. We're the people of Jesus. See, we're not here just to live for ourselves. And we're not even just living for our country. We're living for our king and his kingdom. It's because we belong to a higher authority that we treat lesser authorities with respect. It's because we obey a higher authority that we submit to a lower one. All right, what does this have to do with us? Ordinary people living in Branch County, Michigan, USA. I think first and foremost, it reminds us to remember who we are and whose we are. What we do in our relationships, including our relationship to the government, we do because of who we are, the people of Jesus. We're agents, not tourists. That truth governs all our relationships with parents, with children, with spouses, with neighbors, and with government officials. Operatives in the kingdom of God, they don't have the luxury of self-serving relationships. Our relationships have to serve God. Next, I think verse 1 has something to say to us that we can easily skip over and miss. The NIV translates, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. That verb submit appears again and again in this passage. Paul wrote that, but he did not write that everyone must obey the governing authorities. There's a difference. There's a difference between submission and obedience that's important for us to grasp, both in our relationship to government and our relationship to other Christians. Because remember, we're supposed to submit to one another. Wives are supposed to submit to husbands. It is possible and may sometimes be necessary for Christians to submit while refusing to obey. To submit is to acknowledge that you occupy a subordinate position in a hierarchical relationship. An employee, for example, can do that, can acknowledge his boss's authority over him and yet refuse to obey him or her when a specific order contradicts God's will as revealed in the scripture or in conscience. A soldier ordered to fire on civilians can refuse to obey that order even while acknowledging his superior officer's authority, his superior officer's authority. Submission depends on the authority of the person, whereas obedience depends on the morality of the order. Do you see the difference? You submit to a person but you obey a command, and God will not have us obey a command that contradicts his will. Let me throw out a scenario for you. Let's say in 10 years the government orders churches to conduct same-sex weddings or risk losing nonprofit status, being fined, or, or seeing their pastors incarcerated. Now, I don't think that same-sex marriage is God's best for his people. And in fact, I believe it's a contradiction of his will as revealed in Scripture. Now, I'm not asking you whether you agree with me on that or not. I'm just asking you to consider what I should do in this hypothetical situation based on my convictions. I think Paul would say, 
respectfully disobey the governing authorities. Lose your tax status. Go to jail if necessary. Submit to them even to the point of accepting punishment from them. But obey God. There's something else here. Accepting those hopefully rare times when we must, for conscience sake, disobey the government, we followers of Jesus ought to be known as the best citizens the country has to offer. We should follow Jeremiah's advice and seek the peace and prosperity of the city, and for that state, for that matter, the state and the nation in which God has placed us. We should pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, we too will prosper. Some of us might, even under God's leading, serve in the government, as did Daniel and Nehemiah. And all of us should do what's in our power to make our county, our state, our nation a just and a good place to live. We complain a lot while we sit and watch the news and aren't sitting at the local meeting of the commissioners or the school board. It shouldn't be that way. Some of us are called to that work too. So we should be the best citizens we can be, submitting to government, paying our taxes, serving our communities. But, and this is important, we mustn't allow ourselves to be seduced into thinking, as so many people do, that politics holds the key to our future. Chuck Colson put it this way, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political structures can cure all our ills. The fact, however, is that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. Don't be deceived. Politicians and political and the organizations that they lead will never cure all our ills. Only God can do that, and he will do it through love. That's what Paul was just talking about in chapter 12, and not coincidentally, that's what he returns to in the very next verse in chapter 13. He understood that the most powerful weapon for making a better world is not legislation, but love. We'll never bring the kingdom of God by passing laws, but we will prepare for it by sharing God's love. We're Jesus' people. And we're on a mission. And it's not to perpetuate power or bolster bureaucracies, but to seek the kingdom of God. Remember who we are, the people of King Jesus. Remember why we're here, to serve him as we prepare for his kingdom. Remember how we do that, by exercising our secret weapon, love. We're different. We're radical. We're the people of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray this way. That you'll make us and our brothers and sisters in this community the best citizens in Branch County and in Michigan and in the United States. But I pray that asking you to make us servants of King Jesus first and foremost and always.
and to do this in his holy name. Amen.